It is always indeed a great privilege to open God's word to you guys. And this evening, as I said, we're in Haggai. And we will be spending time looking at the verses that were read for us. But before we come to God's word, uh, I just thought it would be great for me to simply first catch you up on what we've done so far. Our first talk was on kingdom priorities where God calls his people and said, hey, you're not focused on my kingdom. You're all about building your own kingdom. So he calls them to return to him, to focus on his kingdom. And that's what his people do. In the second talk, we saw that God promised them his presence and his provision so that they'll be able to continue the work that he had called them to. And last week, we saw that God calls them to rest in the gospel. So as we start our sermon tonight, how about I lead us in a time of prayer? Father, I do pray indeed that tonight we would know that the king of God's kingdom sits on the throne. That the king of God's kingdom has conquered death, he has conquered evil, and he has conquered Satan. And that, Lord, as you call us to walk and live for you, we walk as people who have the authority of the king. We walk as people who walk in the victory of the king. So I do pray this evening that you'd really encourage us from your word so that we would know that in this mission you've called us to, there's nothing that can shake us from it. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my least favorite things about people Let me rephrase that. One of my least favorite things that people do is tell you the end of a movie or a series without you asking. Like you're having a conversation with someone and right there, out of the blue, they just drop the ending on you. Like, oh, he he never gets the girl. Oh, um, don't get attached to that character. On the second or third episode, they die. There's a movie where a particular artist died within five minutes. And someone spoiled that for me. Uh, Don't know if you guys know the movie, hashtag Chris Brown, hashtag Stomp the Yard. It sucks when someone does that, hey? Well, when you're sitting there and you're having a conversation, and out of the blue, they just spoil the ending of the movie for you. Like, uh, I was really looking forward to that. Like, how could you do that? I did not even ask you to tell me about this. Why are you volunteering this information without my consent, without me asking? See, if you're one of those people tonight, I beg you. I beg you in God's name, please. Don't come closer to me. Now, tonight, I'll actually be one of those people. I'll be one of those people who will spoil an ending for us. And the ending that I'm going to spoil for us is the end of the Bible. See, I'm going to spoil the whole of God's story, the whole of the Bible for you tonight. And more precisely, I'm going to spoil the whole of human history for you. Now, this is how I'll do that. 
I'll read a passage from the Bible that tells us the end of human history, that tells us the end of all the world, the end of the universe, how everything all together at the end comes together. So if you have a Bible before you, would you consider opening to Revelation chapter 21? And I'll read a couple of verses for us there. Revelation chapter 21, I'll read from verse 1. Listen to what this says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and sea, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, that's the end of all human history. Now, that's the end of everything, of all time. See, at the end, God ultimately wins. See, at the end, God sits on his throne and his people are there with him as their king. And I don't know if you noticed something else it says there. It says at that time, there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, and no more moaning. This is the end of all of human history. But perhaps as you're sitting there tonight, you think to yourself, uh, Reggie, I hear you all good and well. That's the end of all human history. But as I think about the injustices that fill our world, I, I don't see how this story is heading towards that end. As I think about the girls who are being abducted, as I think about the racism that fills our, 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 our world, as I think about the poverty and abuse, and much more closer personally, as I think about the kind of an injustice I experience because I've, st- I've decided to stand for Jesus in my workplace. Or perhaps as I look at the politics of our country, as I look at the, the conflicts within the ANC, the DA, and so many other things, as I worry about who will be the next president in our country, will that president care for the religious freedom of God's people? I worry whether indeed that's the end of the story. When I think about Christians that are persecuted in northern Nigeria, in Korea, in North Korea, in Syria, and China, see, this end doesn't seem to make any sense to me. See, rather it seems like another case where the movie has a number of different endings. And somehow the director for this one has chosen the wrong ending. You guys have watched movies like that with several endings. And you feel like, no, this one doesn't seem to fit in. And perhaps as I read those verses, you thought to yourself, I don't see how everything in this world, how all of human history is moving towards that end. How can we be sure that in the end, God indeed does win? How can we have hope that God is not in over his head? How can we be certain that we will be part of the winning side? See, that end of history indeed seems great. But I just don't see how as I look at the world around me, 
Efreten. See, see, if that's how you feel tonight, uh, the, the man with, that we are told about in our passage today was experiencing similar feelings. See, Zerubbabel was the leader of God's people. He was the governor. He had led the first group of exiles back to God's land. And you see, as Zerubbabel is there, he would, have, he would have heard the message from Haggai about getting their priorities right. And he would have been among the people and perhaps led the people as they repented and focused on rebuilding God's temple. And he would have heard the message from God that I am with you. I have gone before you. I will provide for this work. And he would have heard the message from God saying, I am holy. Don't think anything you do makes you right with me. You are only right with me through my grace. He would have heard all of these messages. But Zerubbabel... And the people, as they looked around, would have realized that although they're back in the land and they're building the temple, they are still slaves. There's no king in Jerusalem. See, the only king that's there is the king of Persia, Darius. There's no king in Jerusalem. So, you, so at that moment, we can't talk about God's people in God's land under God's king. They, they, they would have wondered about that. And they would have wondered about Zerubbabel simply still just being the governor. And perhaps Zerubbabel himself would have felt the weight of expectation from everyone around him. God, I hear of your promises to bless us. I hear of your promises. But how are you going to do that in the midst of all this opposition we're facing? Opposition from Persia. Darius has now decided to pull the resources to build the temple. How will you fulfill your promise, God, with all this opposition we're facing from Samaria? With all the injustices we are facing? With all these people who seem much stronger than we are? God, how will you fulfill your promises? And perhaps as you sit here tonight, you wonder the same thing. God, how will you fulfill your promises that ultimately at the end you would get rid of evil, of suffering, and brokenness from our world? See, I'm convinced that if you are anything like me, you have probably, you have probably asked yourself these very questions. That as you look at that story that tells us how God will have his world in peace at the end, when you look at our world now, it just seems to be all good to be true. And you see, so you and I tonight, they need to hear this word that God brings to, to, to Zerubbabel, his leader. We need to hear how God encourages his people when they're in doubt, when his people are discouraged, when his people are worried and fearful of the opposition around them, when his people, when his people are fearful that the world seems to be going down the drain. That God does not look like he's in control. That God does not look like he's in charge. So we need to hear this message that we are told here has been specifically or particularly is spoken to Zerubbabel. And we need to hear how God encourages us, him and us from this word. So I want you to turn to that passage that was read for us a bit earlier in Haggai chapter 2. I'll give you some time as you find your way towards Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. And as we go through this, this, uh, this passage tonight, I'll have two points. And here are the two points. The first point is God wins. 
And the second point that is tied to that is through his king. So these, these two points are actually intertwined. God wins through his king. Just the two points for us tonight. Now let me read for us verse 20 to verse 22 as we go through our first point. God wins. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. And the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Let's stop there for now. Now, as I said, you would have noticed that this message is spoken specifically to Zerubbabel. Something else you would have noticed is that the words that are said here are words that are similar to words we've had earlier. See, in chapter 2, verse 6 to verse 9, God has spoken of this shaking. God has spoken of this overthrowing of the world. He's spoken about it before, and this, and the last time, it was in relation to him providing for his people. See, in verse 6 to verse 9, we are told that God would pull all stops to ensure that his kingdom is built, that nothing would stop the building of his kingdom. Nothing would stop the building of his temple. God would pull all stops in order to ensure that he gives what his people need in order that they would build the temple. And now in these verses, we have a similar picture that is painted. And the picture that is painted for us is a picture of God being a victor. That God is victorious. That God ultimately wins. That God at the end wins. That's the picture that these verses paint for us. Now you may ask, how do these verses paint this picture for us? That God wins? That God is the victor? How does this language of shaking come together with the idea of God being a victor. What what does it mean that God will shake the world? Is this language that is metaphorical or language that is is literal? Or is it a bit of both? Well, let me direct us to a number of passages in the Old Testament that will help us understand what God is saying to his people here. Let me direct you to Psalm 18. So today I should mention to you, we'll be doing a lot of Bible flipping. So if you have felt in any way that uh, you don't know where certain books of the Bible are, uh, well, today uh, we'll help you with that. So turn to Psalm 18, if you can find Psalm 18, and we'll read from verse 7 to verse 8. God uses this similar kind of language of shaking. Listen to what Psalm 18 Verse 7 to 8. If you are struggling to find it, let me just read it for us right now. It says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. So it was shaken. The mountains also, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Now, these words are spoken 
by David when he says he turned to God to pray, to ask that God would come and intervene in his life, that God would intervene as a victor. And the kind of words that David tells us about God's intervention as a victor is this, that the foundations of the mountains tremble to refer to God intervening as a victor in his life. Now, the kind of words that he uses here are metaphorical. But, but as we read in a number of other places in the Bible, we'll see a literal sense where the earth actually shook because God showed his victory. Now, if you have Exodus 15, or you can find your way to Exodus 15, let's go there and we'll read verse 14 together. And I want to show you a number of times when this has happened. Listen to Exodus 15, which is a song that God's people sing right before they were about, as they were making their way towards the promised land. This is what the people say in Exodus 15, verse 14. The peoples have heard, they trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now that is linked to something that happens a bit earlier in 1 Samuel. So if you can open 1 Samuel as well, it will help us understand a bit more of what is said here. If you can find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 14. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, Chapter, chapter 14, it reads as follows. I'm going to read from verse 19. Pardon that. 1 Samuel 14, from verse 14, rather. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20,000 men within, as it were half a fury's length in, in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the peoples, and the garrison and even the riders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now, these two different events show us where God shows his victory. See, in 1 Samuel 14, the people of God were about to go into battle with Philistia, and they were being led by Jonathan. And what we are told is that before, as they make their way to victory, as they are fighting with them, what God does is he brings an earthquake at that time. And with this, with this earthquake, what happens is the Philistian people start stabbing each other and killing each other. And you see there, God shows his victory in this language of shaking. And yet it's literal. God shook the earth and won victory for his people. Now in Exodus, as God's people sing, they would have thought of a different event. They would have thought of the earth opening and swallowing the Egyptian armies as they followed behind them. They would have thought of that event where God showed his victory. And lastly, we see something else as well in Exodus 19, verse 18, where God stands with his people whom he has redeemed from the hands of Pharaoh, his people that stand now before him, his people whom he is about to give his covenant, the people that he is about to make a new covenant with. 
And what we are told in Exodus 19 verse 18 is that as God looked back on his victory over Pharaoh and this new covenant he had made with his people, the mountain of Sinai trembled and it was covered in smoke. See, so whenever we hear this language of the earth shaking, we should be thinking of such events where we see God actually bringing a literal earthquake in order to save his people. In order to show that he is the victor. In order to show that he is the one who is in control and not the kings that are around his people. See, there are numerous other places where you see this sort of event happen as well. And in each of them, all of them, are linked with God's victory, that ultimately God is showing his power, as we sang earlier. He's showing his power. He's showing that he is a victor. As I saw Zerubbabel have these words, you would have thought of those very events when God did indeed intervene for his people in victory by shaking the earth, literally. You would have thought of the verse in Psalm where David calls out to God and he says metaphorically, the earth shook because God intervened for him. God intervened for his people to ensure that his promise is kept. See, God in these very verses shows us that in the shaking of the heavens, in the shaking of, in the, shaking of the earth, he would overthrow and overpower any kingdom or any power that would stand against the building of his kingdom. So Zerubbabel had these words. What you would have heard from God is, Zerubbabel, do not fear. Do not fear Persia. Do not fear Samaria or any other kingdom. Because like Pharaoh and another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, they will all fall at God's hand. See, God is communicating to Zerubbabel that he is in control of all of human history, that Darius is not king. See, although Darius at this moment was king of all the known world, from Spain all the way up to India, what God is saying here is, Darius is not in charge. Darius is not king. I am the king of the world. I am the true king of the world. Now I caution here, I think as Zerubbabel had these words, what you would have not thought of is, God is saying we should rebel against Zerubbabel. We should just go ahead and fight Zerubbabel. That's not what he would have heard. Rather, what he would have heard from God is, trust me that I am in control. Trust that the king who has redeemed you, the king who has brought you back from Israel, from, from, from exile, is in control of the whole world. See, God is communicating that for all of time, he is sovereign. He is in charge of all of human history. He raises kings and he brings down kings. He has power over all the authorities of the world. So now very often I think as Christians, when we look at the world around us, we do get nervous. When we see presidents that seem to work against God's cause, when we think about dictators that make it hard for people to hear of the gospel, when we think of Syria, when we think of North Korea, we, we get worried that God's kingdom will not continue as it ought to. We get worried and wonder whether God is in charge. This is what God is saying. 
North Korea will fall. See, so all these kingdoms, see, just like Persia, who at this moment was ruling this, the, at this time, their kingdom fell under Greece. And Greece fell under the Roman kingdom. And even the Roman kingdom itself fell under, for, uh, under what we now know as Germany. See, see, God is showing that for all of human history, he raises kings and he removes kings. He's in charge. He's in control. And so his people can have confidence that he's in charge. He's sovereign. But you see, there's more that these words that have been said to Zerubbabel would mean. There's more that we can see here. Now, two weeks ago, I said, and I hope then I did not confuse you in any way. I mentioned that in the Old Testament, when you look at prophecy, prophecy in the Old Testament needs to be understood very clearly. See, Old Testament believers, Jewish people, as they thought of prophecy, they would have seen prophecy as one mountain. So let's say you're looking at a mountain ridge, and they were standing in the front of the mountain ridge. They would have seen this promise, the promise of the day when God will shake the earth as something that will happen at one point. But when we come to the New Testament, we realize that the New Testament expands prophecy to be something that's much bigger for us. See, the New Testament gives us a side view. It shows us that there are moments when this prophecy is fulfilled in part. But ultimately, this prophecy is fulfilled in one whom God will send to once and for all time shake the foundations of the earth. You see, this prophecy, when a Jewish people, Jewish person reads it and thinks back on how the Persian government was taken down by Greece, they would have been right to think this prophecy was fulfilled. But it was only in part Because ultimately God fulfills this promise in Jesus Christ, which is something that we see when we come to the New Testament. And you see what expands this for us is a phrase that is there in verse 23. In verse 23, we are told this phrase, on that day, on that day. And you see, Jewish people would have thought of this day as being one event. But when we come to the New Testament, we are told that the event is not only one day. See, the event stretches between two events. It stretches between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And at both events, God shows his victory. See, the New Testament expands this prophecy for us to clearly understand what God would do on that day and how God would achieve his victory. So would you come to the New Testament with me and let us see in these two events how God shows his victory ultimately. Come to the New Testament and as you go to these passages as well in the New Testament, there will be a couple of passages we'll be read, so we'll read, so I hope you'll be ready for some Bible flipping again. I should just say Bible skipping. It sounds like a a better word to use. So come to the New Testament and read with me in Matthew 27. And let's see how Matthew 27 expands this understanding of this prophecy for us. Find your way to Matthew 27 and we'll read from verse 50 all the way up to verse 55. 
verse 50 reads as follows. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And the coming of the tomb, and the coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. <clears throat> Excuse me. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. See, God ultimately shows his victory when we come to the New Testament at the cross. And you see, as Jesus was crucified, what we are told by Matthew is that the whole earth trembled. The earth wasn't just filled with darkness, but the whole earth trembled. And you see, this shaking is meant to point us back to that. It's meant to make us think of God's victory, of how God achieves his victory. And you see, Paul expands this for us a little more. So if you open Colossians 2, verse 15 for us, Paul clearly shows us whom God wins his victory over, how God has victory at the cross. Colossians 2, let's read from verse 15. Colossians 2, verse 15 reads as follows, And he disarmed the rulers, and the authorities, and put them in open shame. It's a public display by triumphing over them in him. Other versions will say by triumphing over them and the cross. See, ultimately at the end, God shows his victory. And his victory isn't just over human kings such as Hitler, such as those such as Mussolini, such as the Persian king right now, such as perhaps the the previous oppressor in South Africa, God shows his victory ultimately in dethroning what is behind these things, which are simply an instrument. See, Hitler and Darius and many who oppose God's kingdom are instruments the instruments of these powers, and these are the powers that stand against God's kingdom. It is evil, or sin, and death, and Satan. These are the powers that stand against the building of God's kingdom. So ultimately behind all of these kings, even behind your Boko Haram, is these three things, evil, death, and Satan. All of them are simply instruments of these evil powers. And you see, at the cross, God declared his victory over death, over evil, and over Satan. Over Satan especially. God declared his victory over Satan, who is the accuser and the opposer of God's people, the opposer of the building of God's kingdom. See, if you read through the Gospels, you would realize that on the time when Jesus was born, it is said you, you hear of this darkness that seems to come closer to him. And the instruments that are used at that moment by Satan is someone who is called King Herod, who tries his very best to ensure that he kills Jesus. 
And as you read through the Gospels, you see, you see numerous times where there are a number of forces that try and stop Jesus from ultimately going to the cross to defeat evil. See, at the cross, God defeats evil. God shows his victory over Satan. But as you sit here, you might say, Reggie, it's all good and well. I hear you that Satan has been defeated. Evil has been defeated. But, but why is there so much brokenness in our world now? Why is there so much suffering in our world now? Why do I, as a Christian now, still suffer, still face injustice and persecution for this God of whom I'm standing for? If God has really won his victory, then why do we see these things? See, what the Bible tells us is that at the cross, God decisively defeated Satan. But now finally, see, there will come a second event where God will finally defeat all that opposes the building of his kingdom, all that opposes his work. See, there will come a day like that. But God has decisively dealt with sin and death and Satan at the cross. Now I'll tell you a story. I'll ask that you do not laugh as I tell you the story. As a kid, I was scared of chickens. I was scared of chickens. And, and at one time um, at home, they decided they, they bought a chicken. Uh, for some reason, someone left the chicken roaming around in the house for that time. <laughs> I was a kid. What happened was uh, I, I had a toy gun, and I saw this chicken coming towards me. Took this toy gun, tried shooting at the chicken. I would hoped the noise would scare the chicken and move it away. Didn't happen. A bit later, though, we, we, we got to uh, slaughter the chicken. If uh, you're not in the township, don't try this. Uh, I've been told I make offside comments, but anyway... <laughs> So I remember as we, as, we, as we slaughtered the chicken, I was holding the, the wings, and I, was, I had my foot on the, on the fit, and someone cut the head off. But because it was my first time doing that, I actually did not perceive what would happen next. The chicken kicked and then just suddenly ran off. And I was shocked. What just happened now? See, when we read the story of the Bible and we think about God's victory, God tells us his victory is like that. See, that chicken, in a few minutes, would fall off. And you see, God has dealt with Satan and death and sin at the cross decisively. But there will come a day when the head of not the chicken, but the dragon, the serpent, as the head of the, of the dragon and the serpent has been cut off. And there will come a day when God ultimately will defeat him. See, another illustration is often used of people who go to war. And after they've been at war and the king of a particular army is killed or the general. But there's still a couple of people fighting off. Usually what happens is these people who are fighting off know that the victory for the other army has already been declared. That the other army has won decisively. Because their king or general or most of their strength of the army, whether it's chariots or whatever it is, 
has been taken away. See, the great confidence we have as Christian from the cross is that God has conquered sin and death and Satan. He has conquered them. Now, I think our understanding of the cross is often, now as I use these words, I'll be very careful we, we, we limit our understanding of the cross. You and I limit our understanding of the cross to simply being God has dealt with my sin. God has come. Yes, he has died for my sins in order that I'll be right with God. But there's more that the gospel says. You know what the gospel says? It says God has come to establish his kingdom. And the way God establishes his kingdom is through his king. And his king finally conquering the very enemy that stood against all that God is for. See, God has come to make right what was made wrong in Genesis 3. The serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. God has come to make things right at the end, and he has defeated Satan. Now, I think the reason why we simply dwell on uh, on the gospel simply taking care of our sins is because you and I live in Midrand. We live in Midrand, a place where there are lots of comforts. You and I don't have to worry about the threat that someone could take our life because we've decided to stand for Jesus. Perhaps you and I don't suffer much. Perhaps as we look around, we don't seem to be experiencing much injustice. And so our focus on the cross, when we think about the cross, we simply think of God having dealt with our sins. And we don't think of how God has come to establish his kingdom by defeating the powers that stood against him. See, if you're a Christian during the apartheid years and you saw a government that oppressed you as a Christian, you prayed to God, one of your things would have been, does the gospel address this? Does the gospel speak into this area of my life? Does the gospel speak about into this injustice or suffering that I'm facing? You see what the Bible, what the gospel tells us is that God does. See, God has come to deal with sin. So Christians in Sudan, in Sudan, in northern Nigeria, in Syria, Christians who are experiencing suffering and injustice can have the great hope that God has dealt decisively with Satan at the cross and he will return to deal with sin at the end. So you and I can hold on to that. When you're struggling at work and you're figuring out, Lord, 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 how can I continue to stand with all of this opposition and injustice I face? Know that we have a king who's conquered and he will come to make things right to the end. So in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to verse 10, we are told of how the devil ultimately is dealt with. We are told how God deals and makes things right at the end. How God restores his world to a place of shalom. Now let me read Hebrews 12 quickly for us to speak about the second event where God will shake his earth. Open Hebrews 12 uh, for me and we'll read it together. Hebrews 12 and we'll read from verse 18. From verse 18 it says, For you have not come to what may be touched. Actually, let's move all the way down to verse 24. Verse 24. 
and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, for if they did not escape when they refused him who had warned them on the earth, much less will they escape if they reject him who warns them from heaven. So let me just find my place there. Let's continue to read. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. See, at the end, what will stand, what will not be shaken, is what is about God's kingdom. So you see, if you and I have said, God, I've gotten my priorities right, I'm all about your kingdom. If you and I have decided we'll stand for Jesus, we will build our lives upon his word, this is one thing we can be certain of. That when God comes back, when Jesus returns and shakes the walls to restore peace and to remove anything that has not been for his kingdom, anything that is not aligned to him, you and I can know that we will be standing firm. We can know that we will not be shaken because we are standing with this king. So John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, over and again says, focus on the things that are eternal. Focus on the things that will not be shaken. Focus on building your life upon God's word. And trust that this God who is sovereign will indeed come back to make all things right. Now as we move on to our second point, let's make our way back to Haggai and see how God does this through his king. We'll be quick as we go through that section in Haggai. We've mentioned most of what will be said here. Let's look at verse 23 together. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. See, there are a number of phrases that, that are used there. Uh, the phrase uh, servant, and the phrase son of Shealtiel, and the phrase their signet ring. And you see, what we're meant to think when we see these phrases we are meant to hear that God is restoring the promise that he had made to David to use his king, to have his king upon the throne as he restores the world. So very few people in the Old Testament were called a servant. And here Zerubbabel is called a servant. And when it said sign of shield till we reminded that God will bring his king through the line of David. And you see, when it says signet ring there, Signet ring is something that would, is a ring that someone would have worn to show their authority. And previously, what we've seen in Jeremiah 22 is that Zerubbabel's grandfather it was said of him that God would remove him, would remove him as a signet ring. So God would reject him in using him through the line of David. So what we see here is a restoration of the promise God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that God would ultimately bring his king 
through the line of David. Perhaps as Zerubbabel sat there and heard these words, he would have wondered, will this day of the Lord happen in my time? I know as you and I hear Zerubbabel, we immediately think Jesus quickly. But Zerubbabel would have said the thinking, will this happen in my time? We, we don't live in the tension. We, we don't live in the tension that would God use him? But we realize as we read through history that the person that whom God used is someone who comes 10 or 9 generations later. Jesus, who comes from this line of Zerubbabel. You see, in these words that God speaks to Zerubbabel, he's simply saying to him, I will preserve your line. I will use your line once again, the Davidic line, to bring about my kingdom. See, Zerubbabel isn't meant to necessarily think of himself as the Messiah. See, much more what he's meant to think about is that God would one day bring his king, his king to rescue the world. And you see, as Jesus steps onto this scene, he is this king. He walks in with the power of God and not simply a sign of the authority of God. See, Jesus is God's king who comes to establish his kingdom. And so as you, as you and I sit here tonight, we can be confident that as our Savior won on the cross and will come back to ultimately show us his victory, we can be sure that all those who belong to him share with him in his victory. See, because Jesus won, we always win. We always win. We win because God will preserve us as we do the work of his kingdom. And you see, on that day, you and I will not celebrate the benefits that come with his kingdom, the benefits such as no more death, no more sin, no more tears. Our eyes will not be focused on that, but our eyes will be focused on the king, the victor. Our eyes will be focused on the lion and the lamb of God who sits upon the throne of God. And you and I will celebrate this victor as we share in his victory. Let me pray for us. Lord, in the times when we are really in doubt and are tempted to be discouraged and don't see really how you will fulfill your promise, would you direct us back to the cross where you clearly displayed publicly your victory over sin, death, and Satan? Lord, you help us to walk in this confidence that we have a God who has conquered, a God who has won decisively, and who will ultimately return to usher us into his final victory. So give us strength for this coming week. Won't you help us to rest in your gospel, to rest in your king. And in Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen.